All right, great. Uh, hello, everyone. So like Brendan said, my name is Zach Jaritsma, uh, and I work for a ministry called Bridges at the University of Bridgeport. Uh, and for my job, I get to train and disciple the next generation of leaders from around the world, and I get to work with them to reach their peers with the good news of Jesus. Uh, so it's an awesome job, but I am honored to be asked to preach here today. I'm really, really excited for the topic that we're going to cover. So um, let's get started. So here's how we're going to start. I'm going to start, this is how, why I asked uh, how far I can walk. Um, we're going to start with a little bit of audience participation here, okay? So really quick, let me just uh, introduce what we're going to do, and then we'll do some audience participation. Are you ready? So for the past few weeks, we've been talking about what it means to love your neighbor. And the last uh, few sermons that we've had have done a really good job explaining that and digging into what that actually means. And so for today, what I want to do is uncover maybe a little bit of some of the barriers that we might face to loving our neighbor right here in Fairfield County in 2021. Are you guys ready to participate a little bit? <laughs> okay, so here's how this is gonna start. I'm going to say the first half of a phrase, and then if you know it, I want you to yell it out, okay? Are you ready? Okay, here's the first half of the phrase. Like a good neighbor. Perfect, great job. Give yourselves a round of applause, that was great, okay. Like a good neighbor. State Farm is there. This is the slogan for State Farm Insurance, super popular. It's in all of their commercials. And really, whenever you hear that, I think what they're trying to convey is a sense of dependability, right? So if your car breaks down, or if your house gets, I don't know, swallowed by a sinkhole or something like that, they're gonna be there for you, right? Just like a good neighbor would. And I think, when they use that slogan, they're tapping into something very interesting that I want to explore a little bit in the beginning here today. So I think the importance of being a good neighbor is something that's kind of floating around in the air in America, right? In addition to the State Farm slogan, we have um, apps like Nextdoor that will try and connect you to your neighbors over social media. I just listened to an episode of This American Life where it talked about what happens when bad neighbors move into a neighborhood and what all the other neighbors have to do uh, to, to work through all of those problems. And then we even have a TV show called The Neighborhood, which is all about a family from the Midwest who moves to Los Angeles and they have to make friends with their neighbors there. And let's not forget the mothership of neighborliness, which is Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, right? We all have this kind of nebulous sense here in America that being a good neighbor is something that's really important. But what's really interesting is that if you take a look at our actions, it actually tells the opposite story. Data has conclusively proven far and away that America is the most individualistic country on earth, and that's not even close. We're number one <laughs> in that category. Uh, I remember talking to a student that I met from India, and he told me that one of the most shocking things about coming to the US 
is that we basically shun our neighbors here. <laughs> Where he comes from, the whole street is basically one shared house. Everybody is coming and going and bringing over food and helping each other out and hanging out. And he said here in the U.S., he doesn't even know his neighbors' names. And in addition to all of this American individualism, uh, we also have this phenomenon called the big sort. In 2004, a journalist named Bill Bishop wrote a really influential book called The Big Sort, and he analyzed American life uh, in all sorts of different areas, politically, geographically, the social clubs that we're a part of. And he concluded that Americans have, quote, sorted themselves geographically, economically, and politically into like-minded communities over the last three decades. He actually has a whole chapter on how churches have taken part in this big sort as well and how more and more we actually only go to church with people that we're comfortable with because they're like us. So for example, you can choose to move to and live in a neighborhood that has all people who look exactly like you, who make around the same amount of money as you do, whose kids all go to the same school, who all play together. Maybe for fun, you do things and hang out with friends who believe the exact same things you do about politics. They share your faith and all of your convictions. And this is not by accident. This is the big sort. And since 2004, all the data has only confirmed what Bishop has been saying, is that uh, the big sort is at work in American culture. So what does American individualism and the big sort have to do with loving your neighbor? Well, to answer that question, I want to take a look at the the passage that we're going to focus on for today. We've talked about it a a couple weeks ago, but I want to revisit it here. It's the the parable of the Good Samaritan found in Luke chapter 10, and it'll start in verse 25. So let's take a look at this passage. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So here, we have a biblical scholar who asks Jesus this question, what do I have to do to gain eternal life? And Jesus, just like all good teachers do, uh, he has the number one thing that all good teachers do, which is to say, well, what do you think? And this guy gives a slam dunk answer. He gets it exactly right. He's distilled years of studying and memorizing and meditating on the scriptures, and he's broken it down into two perfect sentences. This guy gets his theology 100% correct. But look at the next sentence. It says he wanted to justify himself. Now, the word that gets translated justify here basically means this guy wanted to prove to everyone around him that he was all right, that he had already done everything that he needed to do, and there was nothing more that needed to happen. 
In a sense, he was trying to let himself off the hook, saying, like, listen, I've already done everything I need to do, so I'm good. I don't have to do anything more. And he did that by trying to redefine the parameters of what it means to love God, and especially what it means to love your neighbor. And so this is what he asks Jesus. Can you define for me exactly who my neighbor is so that I know exactly how much I have to do and, it, and what I have to do before I can stop. And you know, the scary truth that we can learn from this passage is that it is completely possible to get your theology 100% correct, what you know about God and the Bible 100% correct, and still try and use all sorts of loopholes to justify not loving your neighbor. So in reply, this is what Jesus says. He tells him this story. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So here we have two contrasting reactions to this story, right? Uh, This man traveling down the mountain, he's been beaten, he's been robbed, he's close to death, and two people who represent the most revered and respected groups in Jewish society, the priest and the Levite, they find him, but what does it say? It says they passed by on the other side of the road. Not only did they ignore him, they actually went as far away from him as they possibly could, which made it even easier for them to ignore him. I'm going to say that one more time. They went as far away from him as they could which made it even easier for them to ignore him. But then we have the ultimate anti-hero, which is the Samaritan. Now, a couple weeks ago, we've already talked about the significance of Jesus choosing a Samaritan in the story, but I want to recap it a little bit here because it's very important. So a little bit of history for you. Hundreds of years before Jesus, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two parts, the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom. You've got a map right here. And so what happened was the Assyrian Empire invaded the northern part of the kingdom around right here. And after they had finished the invasion, in order to prevent any more rebellion from happening, they took the top maybe 10 to 20% of society that was living here, the wealthiest and most influential people, and they deported them to Assyria. 
And instead, they brought in more Assyrians. And these Assyrians intermarried and brought in all sorts of pagan gods to mix in with worship of God that was already corrupted. And so the result was an ethnically mixed, religiously deviant group of people. And so when the Jews who had been deported, and some of the Jews from the southern kingdom as well, when they, when they came back from exile, there was so much racial and religious hatred between these two groups that it lasted all the way up and even beyond the time of Jesus. In fact, it was so strong that if you were a devout Jew and you were down here in the south and you wanted to go up to the north and you had to pass through the area where the Samaritans lived, you wouldn't do that. You would actually go all the way around here just to get to the north so you would avoid being defiled by these Samaritans. And so this is the person that actually helps the man in need. Instead of passing along to the other side, he goes to him. He bandages his wounds, puts him on his donkey, and he personally pays for his care until he gets better. And you know, Jesus could have chosen anybody to be the one to show mercy to the man in trouble, but he chose the one that would specifically trigger the racial and religious hatred and prejudice of his audience the one who overcame all of that division and difference and who generously sacrificed to help someone who needed it. And Jesus ends with this simple and powerful statement. Go and do likewise. Let's take a minute and think about, try to translate this to our society today. Who would be your equivalent Samaritan? Sorry, Samaritan. Maybe it's somebody who voted for the opposite president that you did. That would be your Samaritan. Maybe it's your neighbor down the street who's Muslim or who's gay or the Unitarian Universalist or the fundamentalist Christian. You know, for us, we have these two responses. We can choose, when we're presented with someone in need, we can choose to cross all of those racial, religious, tribal divides to help them or we can cross to the other side of the road to make it easier to ignore them. So let me bring this back to our conversation about what's happening in American society. Today, for us in Fairfield County, it is easier than ever to make all of our life decisions in a way that surrounds us with people who look exactly like us. Where we choose to move and buy houses and live where our kids go to school, who our kids play with, the people we choose to interact with at work or as friends, if we want to, we can completely, almost completely, remove ourselves from people who look or believe or act differently than we do. So today, after you go home, I dare you to go online and look up census data for the racial makeup of your neighborhood compared to the surrounding towns. I dare you to go home and look up the median income of your neighborhood versus the surrounding neighborhoods. I dare you to go to your social media feed and look at the people that you follow and the friends that you have and see if they all believe the same things you do. Have you been crossing to the other side of the road and ignoring your neighbors who might live right next to you? And just to be clear, I'm not condemning living in certain areas or making certain life choices. There are good reasons and bad reasons to make any life choice. And so I'm not making blanket statements here. 
But the reason that I chose to say this today is because I think that it might be true for some of us here today. So are you crossing to the other side of the road? Or are you loving your neighbor who might be very different than you? Um, I want to look at one more aspect of this story to identify one more barrier that we may face to loving our neighbor here today. And I want to do this by looking at the implications of what Jesus is saying when he's telling this story. Yes, he's making the point that we just made, that uh, showing mercy and sacrificing for someone else, even your enemy or people you dislike, that's the way that you prove that you're a good neighbor. But here's an interesting question. Who is the hero of this story? Jesus is telling this to a Jewish scholar in a Jewish setting with Jewish characters in it. He's talking to a Jewish audience, and if I were telling this story, I might have made the Samaritan the one on the side of the road. Then the character would have had to overcome all of his prejudices and division to help his neighbor in need. I think that would have been shocking enough, right? But Jesus instead makes the hero of the story the Samaritan. He is the one who helped the man when all the Jewish poster boys of society crossed to the other side of the road and ignored him. You know, Jesus is intentionally flipping the script here. And he's making this point to, again, his all-Jewish audience that loving your neighbor is not about positioning yourself as the hero. You know, we tend to center ourselves all the time when we read the Bible. We tend to imagine ourselves as the Good Samaritan, and we swoop in and give time and money and meals to people around us. But Jesus intentionally takes this option away. Because here's the thing. If Jesus told us this story today, 2021, right here in Calvary, he would not make you the hero of the story. You would probably be either the one on the ground or the one crossing to the other side of the road. Instead, Jesus would make the hero of the story the person or the group that you dislike the most. I'm going to say that one more time. If Jesus were telling this story to us today, he would not make us the hero of the story. Instead, the hero of the story would be the person or the group that we dislike the most. This is where I want to connect this uh, story to the work that I do with Bridges. You know, it's very tempting for me to make myself the hero of the story in what I do. We get to meet new students from all around the world, and we get to love them and serve them and welcome them and train them, and it's amazing. But I've learned in my work with Bridges that I am not the hero of the story. Instead, I have watched what happens when God works in the lives of these young leaders. I know one student from Tanzania who attended a community college before transferring to the University of Bridgeport. And while he was at this community college nearby, he noticed that there was no Christian ministry there. And so he started his own. He still has the t-shirts. <laughs> from it. I know another student from China who was personally and directly responsible 
for almost every single one of her eight roommates coming to know Jesus. I know a third student who started a revival movement on campus, and it took off, and he ran with it until he graduated. Then he handed it off to another student who ran with it until he graduated. Then he handed it off to a third student, and it's still going on today. It is a privilege to be able to serve alongside these leaders. And may God help me if I ever make myself the hero of this story. So let me say this. If you decide to love your neighbor by welcoming an international student into your life, you are not the hero of the story. If you decide to embrace your neighbor who's different from you or lavishly give time and money to help those who need help, you are not the hero of the story. In fact, one takeaway from this that Jesus might want us to get is that we should see our neighbors as equals and accept help from them when we need it. We as Christians in Fairfield County are not standing on a hill handing down time and money and resources to the poor people at the bottom of the hill. Instead, we are at the bottom of the hill with them as fellow humans giving and receiving from each other and anything else devalues them as our neighbors and as people and it really just makes them tools to serve our own ego. We are not the hero of the story. Okay, so we've looked at two potential barriers for loving your neighbor here in 2021. We can cross to the other side of the road and make it easier to ignore people, and we could make ourselves the hero of the story. So where do we go from here? What if we have crossed to the other side of the road, make it easier to ignore our neighbors? What if we have made ourselves the hero of the story? Well, the first thing that I want us to do is take a deep breath and relax. I absolutely do not want you to do anything out of shame or out of pressure to become a good Christian. Shame is a horrible motivator. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And instead, if we can put down our guard and honestly look at our lives without fear of shame or punishment, we can actually see a way forward. And this way forward is actually right at the beginning of this story. The Jewish scholar himself said it. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is not the first time these two commandments have been put together in the Gospels. In fact, Jesus himself gives these two commandments as an answer when someone asks him what the greatest commandment they could possibly follow is. He says this in Mark chapter 12. The most important one, answer Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now notice here, Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is singular. In fact, he even says there is no commandment singular greater than these, plural. There's a little bit of a contradiction here. Jesus is asked to give one commandment, but he gives two. Love God and love your neighbor. 
But in fact, Jesus never talks about the love of God without also tying it to how we treat and love others. Never. They are inseparable in his mind. So this means two things. Number one, it means that if we don't love our neighbor, we actually don't love God. And if that sounds harsh, this is what John talks about in 1 John chapter 4. He says, whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. So if you think that you love God, but you can't actually love your neighbor, whoever they are, then you probably don't actually love God. But the good news here is that the opposite works as well. If we deeply love God and receive love from him, we can't help but love our neighbor because they are inseparable. This is what Jesus talks about in John chapter 15. This is a famous passage. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. When we remain in God's love, when we are connected deeply in intimacy with God, and we receive his love and love him back, we are filled up with his love for our neighbors, which allows us to love them deeply and truly. This is so important, but it's also maybe a little bit vague. What does it mean to love God and remain in his love? How can we do that? And because this is so important for loving our neighbors, I actually want to take some time and give you some practical ways that I have found helpful in my own life to remain in God's love. Okay, so here's, here's the first way that I have found helpful as I try to remain in God's love. The first is to follow the sunbeam. You know, we have many different pleasures in our life that are really good. We have family that we love, beautiful weather. It's like under 70 degrees out today. That's amazing. <laughs> we have good music, good food, the New England Patriots. All of these things are good. And everything that is truly and legitimately good in the world has its origin in God. Maybe not directly the New England Patriots, but like sports in general. But if we see God as the ultimate good, all good things coming from him, that we can practice something that C.S. Lewis calls running back up the sunbeam. So imagine all the good things in your life as a sunbeam hitting your face and warming you up. And as you enjoy that sunbeam, you can trace it back up to its origin, which is the sun. 
In the same way, when we enjoy everything that is legitimately good in our lives, we can trace it back up to God as the ultimate source of it. This can help train us to connect God with goodness and with pleasure and can help us to remain in his love because all the good things that we experience as human beings is an expression of God's love. And so if we can train ourselves to connect that back to its true source, it will feed our love for God dramatically. So the first thing that I think can really practically help us to remain in God's love is to follow the sunbeam. The second thing is to smash the house of mirrors. One of our biggest barriers to loving God is often that we have a perverted view of him. It's like God is standing in a house of mirrors and all the mirrors keep distorting the image of him so that we can never see him for who he truly is. Maybe you go to look at one mirror and he looks like your father or your mother who is hypercritical or overbearing and you think that's what God is like, distorts the image. Maybe you turn to another mirror and it looks like someone in your life who hurt you or abused you and you think that's what God is like. Maybe you turn to another one and it looks like a religious leader in your life who heaped shame on you and you think that's what God does. You need to be ruthless about smashing these mirrors to bits because nothing will kill your love for God quicker. So, we can follow the sunbeam back up to the good thing, from the good things in our lives. We need to smash the house of mirrors that are distorting God's view of him. And, and just as a, an aside, if you want to know who God truly is, one of the best ways we can do that is by looking at what he has said about himself in the Bible and by experiencing his presence through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This can help train us so that we know who God actually is and who he is not. So the third way that I've found helpful in my own life is to create portals to his presence. And if that sounds weird, <laughs> what I just mean by that is we can create, uh, open up these pockets in our life where we spend uninterrupted time with him. And this can really look like almost anything. Maybe you're praying alone in nature and you're just spending time with God. Maybe it means that you invite God on your run with you in the morning. Maybe it means you're thinking of him as you wash dishes. It can really look like anything. The key is to do whatever you can do to open up this portal to just simply be with him with no agenda, no expectations, and no pressure. And that is going to feed your love for him dramatically. Now, I want to be very clear here with these three things. One of the, the biggest ways that people with good theology try to justify not loving their neighbor, just like the Jewish scholar did, one of the biggest ways that they do that is by only focusing on God's love and maybe downplaying what it means to love others. So I want to be very clear here, that's not what I'm saying, because remember, we learned that that's impossible. If you think you love God, but you don't love others, you don't actually love God. But instead, if we remain in God's love, we can't help but make genuine friendships with our neighbors who live in areas that we don't like to be in. We can have dinner 
with our liberal or our conservative neighbors. We can even move our homes and our lives to be closer to people who are different than us. And we can do it all without being selfish or making ourselves the hero because our love is then as pure as God's own love. And that's what we need to be giving to all of our neighbors. So I think those are some important things that we need to know for today in America in 2021. Despite all of our individualism, which is not all bad, but has some dangers to it, and this, this pull to, to isolate ourselves with people who are just like us, we can't do that if we want to love our neighbors well. We can't make it all about us because that devalues those that we're helping. So today, if you want to truly love your neighbor, you need to overflow with love for others because of the fact that you, along with every single person on this planet, is deeply loved by God. And so then you can faithfully obey Jesus' words, which still compel us today. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. God, um, I know that there are many different things in my life that want to pull me away from my neighbor, whether it's uncomfortableness or fear or anything else, God, but I, ju I just pray that you would show us truly who you are. Help us to experience your love in a deep way so that we are not the same because of it that we can't help but love our neighbors around us. God, I ask that you would remove these barriers to loving our neighbor so that here at Calvary Church, we can be the ones overflowing with your love for us so that we can't help but love our neighbor. God, we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.